your YouTube feed is crap. Stop wasting your time watching bot-boosted shills and self-appointed gurus cloying for your attention. Instead, join the Goslings interview, live stream, and podcast. The Goslings, a dark-lit digital speakeasy of free thinkers. A super chat of radical truth-seeking wizards who eat trolls for second breakfast. Topics that'll make your mama's hair stand on end. Ideas that'll make your pastor's knees knock. Guests that will illuminate the hidden chambers of your mind. And interviews that strike down the darkness. Welcome to The Goslings. Well, I want to um, ask you our patrons question. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we have patrons at a certain level that we uh, give them the opportunity to, to forward a question to our guest. And this is by our patron, American Cars. Yeah. And he says, uh, Vicky, what were some of the best resources you found when researching researching spiritual warfare? I'm still not clear on what the spiritual realm can and cannot do and what we as children of the Lord can and cannot do in response. Mm, our, yeah. What are our authorities, et cetera? Yep, that's a great question. By way of like stuff to put on your bookshelf, I would recommend anything Greg Reed. Um, and that's R-E-I-D, not R-E-E-D. Uh, Greg Reed, Reed. Is, he is the, uh, the old guard. He was there in the 80s. In fact, his work, uh, the things that they were exposing, his team were exposing in the 80s, is what necessitated the whole satanic panic movement. They were making so much progress in exposing the underbelly of generational Satanism that they had to come in and, and do a cleanup. And so uh, that's how satanic panic came about. And my theory is anytime, whether you're right or wrong, it doesn't matter what you're trying to get someone to believe. If you have a cute little rhyme, you win the game. So if, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. Satanic panic, it rhymes. Mm -hmm. And then anyone who thinks on the opposite side of that rhyme is just a fool. So unfortunately for us, panic rhymes with satanic. So we kind of lost that, that round. But uh, Gregory Reed was behind that. He's written many books and he is an expert in that field. Um, one thing, and this is, you know, I got to be careful how I say this because I'm not asking people to, you know, grab their torches and be looking for trouble. But a lot of what I learned about spiritual warfare, I learned firsthand going through it. And uh, I think that sometimes we're going through spiritual warfare and because we're not as sober minded and vigilant as we are supposed to be, we don't even recognize it. There's a lot of what I would maybe call low level spiritual warfare that we just think you know, this, this is where the enemy is brilliant with, with the condemnation he puts in our head. Something will go wrong in our, on our life and he'll get us to believe, well, I deserve that because I did such and such, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I went out and, you know, I, I had sex when I was a teenager. So I deserve this, you know, it's a consequence. And so he completely deflects the fact that he's needlessly tormenting you. And with the word, he would have to go away by you thinking this is a burden I have to bear because I sinned. And so I think even just becoming aware of the low level warfare in our life 
and learning just firsthand how to pray against it, you learn what works and what doesn't work when you're applying it in your own life. There is way more to be learned about spiritual warfare in the scriptures. I think a lot of people, they go for these glossy covered books with, you know, the the dragons and the demons and the beasts and the Baphomets on, on the on the front. And uh, then we neglect the Bible because we think, well, other than Ephesians 6 and maybe a little bit in Revelation and Daniel, like it really doesn't talk a lot about spiritual warfare. But, you know, the, the Bible is a handbook on spiritual warfare. Uh, there, it, it is a cosmic war from from the time that the serpent shows up in the garden until the very last chapters of Revelation you have spiritual warfare going on in, in everything. And so I think that going to scripture every day and reading it with the aid of the spirit of God and, and carefully reading it and asking the spirit to guide. And I don't like the word illuminate. I know that that's what we're supposed to say. The Holy Spirit's supposed to illuminate what you read, but you know, that is such a charged word now. And it's such a, tell me about it. Yeah, it's been hijacked by the new age and I'm not so sure I want anybody illuminating anything for me. So I don't really like that word, but you you pray as you read the scriptures and you're, you're we have to start looking at the scripture uh, like steak. Um, I always tell my dad, my dad loves steak and he always wants to go to steak restaurants. I hate going to steak, steak restaurants. And he's like, this is like the best food on the planet. It's expensive. It's fancy. Like, why don't you want steak? And I'm like, it just takes too long to chew it. Like, I'm just lazy. Like I just want a nice comfort food, but you know, you have to take these little bites and then you have to chew and chew and chew. And that is what scripture is. And we have turned the Bible into Mac and cheese. We've turned it into uh, uh, something that we can just shovel into our mouth and it's soft and you don't even need teeth. You, you just mush it with your palate and like chug gum, it back to the beverage. You down. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> We have turned the Bible into mush. We've turned it into comfort food. And we have to bring mm. it back to the point where uh, this is a filet mignon. And we're not going to chug this down because it costs 30 to $40. And we're not, we want to taste it. We want to savor it. We want to smell it. We want to take bites. We want to chew. We want to get every ounce of flavor out of it. When we turn the Bible into mac and cheese, we miss the point that there's a lesson in demonology and spiritual warfare and how to equip ourselves to work against the devil in every page. And so there's great resources out there. It's like, Hey, go to, go to, you know, the shatter the darkness website of Russ Dizdars, go to through the black, go to Greg Reed. There there's great things out there. Um, my, my friend and colleague, Colleen mm -hmm. James, she has a book called the lie effect. And if this is an excellent book, if you're an SRA survivor, great things in there about prayers and spiritual warfare in the modern day and what they're doing with the technology and things to pray against. There's great resources out there, but if you're obtaining those resources to the neglect of the scripture, uh, you, you're getting pre-digested food. You're getting the food that somebody else chewed first. Yeah. So this is like a bird that chews its food and spits it into the mouth. So I prefer a steak that no one's previously chewed. So we, we go to the, we go to the scriptures first and we don't ever overlook the fact that the Bible has something to say on every topic that is relevant to our Christian walk. 
And so we might have to dig deeper. Uh, I love that little adage. I, I went to a church once where it was hanging up in the church library. Um, it, if you rake, all you get is leaves. If you dive, you might get pearls. And it's the fact that diving uh, requires training, certifications, expensive equipment, knowledge, patience. Uh, if you want the pearls, you're going to have to invest. And if you just want to get up every day and do your five minute devotional or listen to a sermon on your drive to work while you're thinking about a thousand other things and distracted with the traffic, you're going to get a bag of leaves. That's great. You raked and you got the bag of leaves, but all you got at the end of the day is the bag of leaves. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. And this is something that, Eric, you, you touched on something that drives me nuts, and uh, I'm not going to name any particular church, but in, yeah, in, in many churches that I've been in, it's been very—you you can call it surface level. We're going to open the scriptures. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about the most surface level. Um, it, it is what it says, right? Just take it at face value. It is what it says, and uh, you don't have to think any farther beyond that. Mm -hmm. And kind of, kind of, almost like a taking a passage of scripture and just being milk toast about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, the whole time, I'm thinking it it means you know there's there's so much context to this. Mm -hmm. You know there are there are prophetic passages related to this. I mean there's there's more, and we're not diving deeper. It's like, and I think they and I and I think churches do that because they want to kind of in a way tailor the presentation to unbelievers or new believers right. and they don't want to overwhelm them with depth. They want it to be accessible. Give them the depth. Throw yeah, it all at them. You know? Absolutely. Give I, you them know, the whole meal. Give them the whole steak. If it's too much for them, they can eat the broccoli. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. I think with pastors and especially youth pastors, I think we have settled for this notion that people don't have a desire for that depth. And so we're giving them what we think they want. And I think that we have really underestimated how ravenous the appetite is for truth. Mm -hmm. You know, Pilate asked it, what's truth, you know, but I think even teenagers, it, it looks like they're more interested in their friends and their social media and all these stereotypes we have of them. If we actually fed the kids in our youth group with deep, deep, profoundly con like theological concepts, mm -hmm. it would awaken a, a, a latent part in them. And if we could show them the Bible through the eyes of Michael Heiser and Ellie Marzulli and Tom Horn, if we, if we could show the, the scriptures uh, through less of a 15th, 16th, 17th century uh, liturgical view, and if we brought out the supernatural aspects of it and we started showing them who God really was and what this unfolding redemptive plan really meant and how how it pertains to them, I think that these kids would eat it up. And so this this idea of keeping people happy by giving them almost nothing. And another thing that I think has been a very subtle shift. It, it's almost been unnoticeable and it's happening in the pulpit and it's happening in our worship music. And that is that it has a sense of being very biblical and very spiritual because Jesus's name is being used. God's name is being used. 
scripture is maybe being quoted here and there, but the, the crux of what's being talked about is man-centered rather than God-centered. And so what you're really getting is a moral lesson. You know, I, I'm coming, I'm approaching my congregation as a pastor on the assumption that everyone in the pulpit is going through a rough time and there's financial issues and there's marriage issues and there's kid issues. So I am going to be a glorified group counselor this morning and I'm going to pick out, I'm going to cherry pick scriptures to help comfort this extremely depressed, broken, apathetic group of people. Mm. And what, what doesn't happen then is people leave with the Band-Aid because all that's really been spoken about is man, which is not an inspiring sermon. If no. we <laughs> if we could forget about ourselves for 40 minutes a week, okay, you've got 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If on Sunday morning, you could just let the pastor for 40 minutes, we're not going to talk about you or your problems or your life. We are for 30, 40, 60 minutes, however long your pastor's sermon is, we're going to focus on the power, the presence, the love, the nature, the character of God, his plan, his will, what he's unfolding. If we could catch a vision for the magnitude of who this God is, and pastors, you can get away with it. People that are coming to church expect to hear church stuff. Like mm -hmm. it's not like they're going to get up and walk out because you pulled a Bible out. They're yep. there voluntarily. Mm -hmm. So put them aside. If, yep. if they want to come to a Wednesday night worship service or they want to come to a marriage counseling session or they want to join a small group and commiserate with one another, that's great. That church exists for that too. But on Sunday morning for 30 minutes, can we just stop talking about us for 30 <laughs> minutes? Can we open the word and focus on God? 30 yeah. minutes. It's all we're asking. Yeah. And it, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like a healthy escapism. It's the same reason why people go to the movies. You know, you go to the movies, you go to see Top Gun 2, which is awesome because you don't want to like think about your day job, which sucks, you know, or you don't want to think about like your health, which sucks. You know, mm -hmm. or you don't want to think about your family, which sucks. You know, <laughs> so like, you know, and so we all go to those things. And like, if you really kind of like boil it down, there are these weird Venn diagram overlaps between going to a movie and going to church, you know, yeah, there and are. especially if you if you're you can use the same the same approach of escapism, but it can be something nutrient dense. You know, it's mm -hmm. not an empty calorie fantasy escapism. It's a healthier kind of escapism. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah, I don't know, kind of like mm -hmm. a Sabbath. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, the escort. <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> Weird. It's like we've come I, all the way back. <laughs> yeah, right. right? <laughs> um, was, you, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, that, that was abolished, you guys. You know. <laughs> <laughs> How dare we? Well, Lord's Day, it's the new we Sabbath. Have, we have nine commandments now. Yes, that's right. Yeah, well, it's better than having 11 commandments, as Vody Bauckham puts it, which is, you know, the 11th <laughs> commandment is be nice. You know, thou shalt be nice. <laughs> that, that's a tough one there. I, uh -huh. I'll stick with the 10. Oh, no, <laughs> I, I, I like what you're saying, though, Jonathan, because I think with this escapism thing, and I've 
I've lamented that and talked about that myself, that when, when we preach an easy believism that is very easy for someone, especially someone who's emotionally distraught or broken to receive, if, if, you, if you preach an easy believism, that might fail when, when the faith is tested or things get really rough. Uh, I, I know back in the, you know, Johnny Erickson Tata, the, the quadriplegic who has a ministry out of, of Southern California, when she was 17 years old, she prayed and asked God, I, I want to take you seriously. I want to really love you with all my heart. I, I'm, I really want to get closer to you. And, and this is her words and her theology. This isn't me saying it. Uh, she had a diving accident and broke her neck, you know, and I don't want to say that this is what God does. Hey, you pray to be close to him and he's going to put you in a wheelchair. Don't, don't hear me saying something like that. What I'm saying is there is no way we could ever tell a potential convert who we want to pray that magic prayer. There's no way we could ever stress enough to them the price tag that comes along with that prayer. Okay. It, it is a tough pilgrim's progress walking with the Lord. And so when you appeal to a broken person in a moment of great need and you're blasting worship music that can be very manipulative if used properly and yep. your, your dopamine is releasing from their heads because all these drums are going and the bass is coming up through the floor and you're only promoting the wonderful out of context promises and it's that Jesus is going to be your best friend forever and he can do all things and if that is what people are signing up for and six months into the journey that's not what they're getting this is where you see this falling away of people and this idea that God has failed them because for them and it's not their fault it's the way it's being presented to them uh, the church and that community and that sense of belonging and the excitement and the thrill that comes out of that that initial coming to, to Jesus moment, if all that is, is theological psychotropic medication where, okay, it, it, it's, it's going to wear off. It, it's going to wear off. And so I, I think that with, with the church and all of the bells and the whistles and the fog machines, at some point, we got to just get back to the keep it simple. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, Gabriel Bello says the same thing. Uh, the saxophone musician friend of ours. Gay Bello music. Yeah, dude. And he he lives it. He you know, he's in churches all the time playing and he sees it everywhere. Pete from Creepy Little Book says the same thing. That's like one of his biggest points of contention with the church is just how it's like a concert with Starbucks, you know, an emotional catharsis. Yeah. You know, and John Howler talked about it with the Asbury thing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, maybe that's being reductive. Obviously, there's probably some truly transformative experiences going on in those things. Qualifiers, qualifiers. But, mm -hmm. you know, can, can I ask what your what your opinion of uh, Asbury is? Oh, yeah. You know, I really didn't follow it much. Uh, and so. I don't really know what what was going on, but what what I will say is, with things like that, we'll know by the fruit. Yeah. When when will this fizzle out? If it does, you know, there were all sorts of things being said at the time and even now about all of the downsides to the to the Jesus movement of you know the 1960s as well. Mm -hmm. And you know, there might have been a lot of people that 
fell away after that or, or whatnot. But the fact is it's 25 years later and there's a whole church movement that came out of that. And so there was some fruit and I kind of think of it too, like 9-11. Remember how, how churchy everybody got after 9-11 and yep. everyone, and it, it didn't last much more than six months and, and it was gone. It fizzled out. And so mm -hmm. I, it, it's never easy to tell in a moment uh, whether or not something was effective or not. And we know that e e even if it was something of the devil, God can use whatever he wants for good. And so um, I'm just holding out for the fruit. I want to see the fruit of it. And are our, our, our disciples going to come out of it? Because this is the thing. We have reduced the Great Commission to how many people sign a card or how many people raise their hand. Uh, anybody anyone on a on, given the right set of circumstances on the right day you could get you could get alistair crowley to pray that prayer i mean and i'm, yeah. I'm not facetious right. given the right set of circumstances on the right day with the right person when all the plans aligned you could get anyone to pray that prayer yeah. and so the, the the this measurement this this measuring rod that we use of how many people signed a card how many people came forward? How many people raised their hand? What the Great Commission is about is making disciples. And yep. those disciples replicate by then making their own disciples. And disciples who have been taught all that Jesus commanded and are walking in those commands. So at the end of the day, if 40 billion people on the planet all of a sudden prayed a prayer or gathered in their town squares and, and worshiped God... Uh, not that God couldn't glean glory out of that, but is that the same thing as uh, long-term discipleship and fruit? So um, I, I don't really know. Um, I don't. I don't have a firm opinion one way or the other because I didn't really follow it. But you, you'll know by will know by the fruit. Great Very question. wise answer. Great question. Honestly, um, you had mentioned. Uh, Russ Dizdar's Shadow of the Darkness. Uh, they kind of actually was a question I was going to ask you. Um, America and Cars, uh, the one who had the Patreon question, he and I were talking earlier today, and he had mentioned Russ Dizdar, and I'd never heard of him before. Uh, apparently, he wrote a book called The Black Awakening, Satanic Super Soldier, or The Rise of Satanic Super Soldiers and the Coming Chaos. We've been kind of dancing around a lot of this, talking about chaos magic mm -hmm. uh, in the Patreon exclusive. We're talking about you had mentioned Shatter the Darkness. We were talking about the Satanic Panic um, and Russ Dizdar. If I remember from my conversation correctly, uh, he and his wife died within a week of each other last year. They were based out of Georgia. Uh, what they were talking about in that book is their what are your thoughts on that? And is there a correlation to what they were talking about with, um, with the trafficking and, uh, and the SRA and the sort of MK ultra esque super soldier thing that they are kind of building. And what are your thoughts on SRA? Yeah, absolutely. Loaded questions, but we'll take yeah. one of the <laughs> I know. I'm about that. Russ, Russ and Shelly Dizdar, they were actually out of Canton, Ohio. And Ohio. okay. Yep. And they died within two weeks of each other. And interestingly, for those who travel in these circles, Rob Skiba died. T 
two weeks later, Russ died. Two weeks later, Shelly died. Hmm. At the same time that this was going on, Steve Quayle was near death. Tom Horn was in the hospital near death. Hmm. And there was a lot going on there. So there was the a blitzkrieg basically going on against these people. Absolutely. It was crazy. And um, this was 2021. So we're still in all the, the COVID nonsense and all this mm -hmm. stuff. So this is going on. And October is a huge month of occult rituals and activity, um, not just with Halloween, but uh, there's all sorts of, of uh, occult activity in um, there's uh, reverse Halloween. So things really get started on October 13 all the way up to the 31st. And then you've got the old Celtic Salween and, you know, all, all this stuff. Right. So anyway, um, Russ and Shelley passed. Now what Russ was sort of known for what he did well was he did a lot of cold case occult crime. And he worked at one time with the Canton police department training the officers in occult crime and he had uh, access to cold cases and his team, which was, it used to be called SIIU and they've rebranded now since his death and they're the Shatter Ops team. And the Shatter Ops team is actually teaming up with the Through the Black team at the end of this month, March 31st in uh, Brookville, Ohio, which is in the Dayton area. And the Shatter Ops team and the Through, Through the Black team will be putting on the Out of the Darkness conference. And we're going to be there. Greg Reed is going to be there. And we're going to be doing Freedom Encounters there. There's going to be great speakers there and breakout sessions. But uh, I just want to put a shout out to anyone listening. If you want freedom from any of this stuff we're about to talk about, any sort of ritual abuse, satanic ritual abuse, demonic oppression, uh, sleep paralysis, any of that, we are there. We have uh, counselors set up in back rooms to meet with and pray with and do deliverance with people. So if you go on to the throughtheblack.com website, I, right there on the homepage, you can click on the out of the darkness icon. I think tickets are around 50 bucks, give or take. The tickets are very affordable. And so check that out if that's of intrigue to you. But Tom Dunn, who runs Through the Black, who's my co-host, we do shows. Well, Through the Black has shows six nights a week, uh, Sunday all the way through, um, or no, I'm sorry, Monday through Saturday at 11 p.m. Eastern on Through the Black 2, which is a YouTube channel. And Tom, to get back to the topic at hand, Tom was personally mentored under the tutelage of Russ Dizdart. They knew each other for many, many, many years. And Through the Black is a, a adjunct of that. Tom then spread out on his own. This is what we were talking about minutes ago, making disciples. And then the disciples going out, like you don't stay in your little comfort zone with your mentee, then you are equipped to go out and, and influence where, where you're at. So that's how Through the Black came into being. Cool. But the, the book Black Awakening is very uh, specifically talking about the super soldiers. So this goes all the way back to the MK Ultra days. This goes back to Hitler and the Ubermensch, the Superman that they were the 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 kind of the precursor to the transhumanism movement. And so the rise of the super soldiers, and that is this idea that those in uh, the generational Satanist underground have been doing these mind control rituals and have been programming 
a, an, an entire army of individuals. So these super soldiers are people who basically have been MK ultra for lack of a better word. Some of them might be aware of the fact that they're a super soldier. Some may not. There's embedded triggers. A lot of them know foreign languages. They don't know. They know um, almost oh, wow. the old guard. I think we're on either the fourth or fifth generation of, uh, of generational Satanists who have been in, in, in this, this program. Uh, in the past, every single uh, programmed person could speak fluent German. And so one of the old tests for uh, determining whether or not someone had alters or, uh, you know, disassociative identity disorder is uh, if you triggered them, they, they would be able to speak German. So that was kind of one of the giveaways in the past. But anyway, these super soldiers, here's, here's the theory. The theory is that when the time is ripe, and the Antichrist hits the scene, that it's like a it's like a fifth column idea. So in the old days of warfare, yep. your enemy could come from the north, the east, the south, or the west. But the most dangerous of all was the fifth column, and that was the, the Trojan horse. That was when the army was among you. It, it was among you, and you didn't know it. And so when when the war so far went they're right there that you don't, it doesn't matter. You don't lock the city gates. They're, they're in there with you. And so basically when, when this time comes to fruition and this is where the enemy is unfortunately way more equipped and, and pre-planned out than the church, yes. the, the church, the church's plan is when the crap hits the fan, I, I hope that shofar sounds and I get sucked into heaven by the heavenly Hoover, right? That's, that's our plan <laughs> is we're going to get sucked off the planet and not have to deal with it. But meanwhile, the Satanists, and I'm talking about the underground people you would never know are Satanists. These are not the people running around in black nail polish with their Megadeth t-shirts. Those guys are jokes. Those guys are dabblers. Uh, yeah. a, a real Satanist will never let you know. You'd never suspect it. Uh, the, the underground generational Satanists, they're the ones uh, preaching at your Baptist church. They're the ones leading your, your Bible study. They're the ones teaching your kids Sunday school. And I'm not joking. That's where they are. Yeah. And so uh, the underground church, the underground satanic movement, they have been working on this for a millennia and they are prepared. They have an army ready to go. And when the time is right and they are triggered, this is the, this is the plot line of the black awakening uh, and good luck getting your your hands on a copy of that now. I tried. Um, I can't. Can't yeah. find. It. I spent like an hour today scouring the internet, and I mean, truly, like a full hour. Wow. Yeah. Digging yeah. through the internet, you cannot find one. It's yep. definitely one of those no no naughty books. Mm. Yep. If you got eight or nine hundred bucks burning a hole in your pocket, you can find you know one or two here and there. But yeah, so. But the the plot line of of the Black Awakening is that when when the Antichrist says go, these latent super soldiers are going to wake up, and all of a sudden we're going to have potentially millions of triggered, armed and dangerous, mind controlled under this satanic influence people who can kill and destroy and. You know, just think, think of um, think of the power that like, did you guys ever have to see those movies in health class when you were in, in high school where they were showing like police footage of guys getting arrested who were on LSD and they yeah. had like 
superpowers and they it would take like 10 guys to hold them down and they yeah, get yeah. shot like five times and they're like th this is just a hint of what we are dealing with here and because at this point they are you know in addition to all of the mind control and the programming and the training th they also have a demonic base they, they're, they're a vessel for some sort of demonic force as well and so you potentially what what do you want to call it a demon an entity um basically all of the disembodied nephilim from antediluvian days find a vessel now they got this body this willing vessel and so it's humans but they're of superhuman strength and they're they're probably some sort of demonic or nephilim type of soul put into that entering into that body at that point and so Man. So if, if the church doesn't get gloriously raptured before any of this happens, uh, we better have a plan B. You know, when scripture says to be prepared, that means that the rapture is a great idea. But what's plan B? You know, mm -hmm. no army is going to go onto foreign soil with one plan that's yeah. going to work perfectly. So uh, the Bible is an extremely militaristic book it, it's a military handbook as jamie walden points out perfectly in his book omega dynamics but there is so much military language in in the scriptures like the great commission even commission like that's a military term yeah and so i don't understand why there's so much military language in in this book and so much about preparation and and sober-minded and so much uh information on who our enemy is and so much tactical information on warfare like in ephesians 6 why is all that there if we're going to just get sucked up into the sky and not ever have to face any sort of of trouble and i'm i'm not trying to push some sort yeah. of pre or post trib i i actually have some ideas about that that would really not fit into any modern eschatological context because i don't think that it's as simple as as pre or post, but, you know, without digressing into a complete and utter <laughs> mind swamp known as Vicki Joy's head. Um, <laughs> I, what I'm saying, I'm not trying to make a point of pre or post trip. What I'm trying to make a point of is if we glom onto any eschatological theory, and that's the one and only thing that we're going to believe and nothing else, then we are not obeying the scriptures that tell us to be prepared because preparation means you have a plan B, a plan C, a plan D. I mean, even in our house, we have all sorts of plans for like, it, what, what, what if there's a fire in the kitchen? We'll do this. But what if the fire's in the basement? Well, then we'll do that. Or, or you know, what, what if someone breaks in and my, you know, my mace is all the way upstairs in my bedroom and what, what do I do if someone breaks in and my, my handgun is locked in a safe that I can't ever get open because I can't fumble the lock. And so no one who feels that their life is being threatened would come up with one plan and not think of every single window or door that that enemy could come in. So um, yeah. I don't really care what people believe eschatologically. I I don't I don't get I don't get upset when people say one thing or that. I, I don't have enough energy at this point in life to bicker with every single person as to when they think Jesus is coming back. What what is of importance to me though is that we're commanded to be 
uh, we're commanded to be sober-minded, vigilant, and prepared. Yep. And so being prepared means I'm going to a picnic on July 4th and I'm going to bring my picnic basket and my boom box with all my favorite music and my Frisbee and all the food I like and my cooler full of beer. And it's not going to rain because that would ruin it. And I don't like rain. And so I'm not going to bring an umbrella and I'm not going to bring a tent and I don't like ants and bugs all over. So I'm not going to bring bug spray because I don't like them and I don't want them to be there. That's not, that's not preparation. Preparation means ideally I want this picnic to be wonderful, but I'm going to bring the bug spray in case there's a whole bunch of bugs. I'm going to bring the umbrella in case it rains. Uh, we, we have all of these things. We, everywhere we go, we're bringing suntan lotion and umbrellas. And so you're going to prepare more for a family picnic than you're going to prepare for Satan coming back to the planet to kill us all. I mean, come on, we got to think this through guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I agree. You hear that people in the comments who glob onto one eschatological, eschatological theory and just demonize everybody who doesn't fit in that box. Rapture fight 2023. I mean, the, yeah. these people are just like ruthless. I've never seen Christians being so just cold hearted to other Christians because they don't share the same <laughs> idea as to when the rapture happens, when the big yeah. Hoover truck happens. You yeah. know, I mean, be prepared that what you just said, there's yeah. so much reason in what you just said. If you believe it's going to be whatever pre-trib, great, but be prepared because right. if, what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong? Yeah. Are you prepared? Are you, or are you just going to completely yeah. fall apart and not know what's going on yeah. and work away? You know, and the, the and the reverse is true as well. I'd rather be prepared and get Hoover sucked before everything happens. Absolutely. Yeah. Then not get Hoover sucked and then not be prepared. Yeah. Not have Absolutely. any kind of a plan. Yeah. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Because, well, it just makes sense to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are a lot of. Uh, there are a lot of other ways that society can be like heavily destabilized outside of just your rampant PCP AR blasting, you know, possessed bad guy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. Those, those guys can go around and there are water treatment plants, you know, there yeah. are power grids, um, there are food supplies, railways, mm. you know. There are all sorts of things that yeah. you can do to disrupt, destabilize, uh, the, you know, fifth columnists, fifth generation warfare, and uh, and the notion of fifth columnists, it presents itself in a myriad of ways. Yeah. And, you know, there that's like where that whole, you know, prepping community like actually comes in handy and where like being a 2A proponent like, really comes yeah. in handy because like, yeah, dude, you know, all that stuff. What if? What if? Yeah, you know, and it's better to like spend the money on something that's just gonna like collect dust. I need more ammo, you know, by the way. Then, well, you yeah, know. yeah, well, you know, and I think that's a lot of uh, a lot of like the uh, mass shooters and school shooters that we see, whether they're actually the people that get arrested or not is a whole other thing. Um, but I think, I think there are a lot of demonically possessed entities in uh in the alphabet soup agencies mm. of our government mm -hmm. that are going around doing a lot of wet works you know i mean look at look at ruby ridge and waco you know and not that like david koresh was an awesome guy or anything but uh but i know whose side i was on <laughs> I mean, yeah well if you're the enemy you uh know? if you if you had soft targets 
high up in these agencies or high up in the government, why wouldn't you go after them to try to influence them, possess them, mm -hmm. control them? I mean, why would you not want to support well, it's like, yourself uh, at those levels? Vicky, did you ever see season one of True Detective? No. Oh, you, you would love it. It's it's amazing. And they kind of touch on this before this stuff was really popular. There's a, there's a character in there who is a preacher and he very much is like exactly what you're talking about. He's an undercover Satanist and he's like the biggest preacher of the biggest mega church. You know, he's kind of a Kenneth Copeland type, you know, and yeah, he's like secretly doing these satanic child sacrifice rituals, you know, out of the woods. And yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, look at Bohemian Grove. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know? Yeah. This stuff will turn yeah. you into Alex Jones before you. <laughs> I know. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because what what's fascinating to me to kind of tie, tie all this in with what we were talking about previously with the eschatology is many, many people, Christian and non-Christian, in the last three years, definitely, but even in the last 10 years, we have had this aha moment that a lot of what we have believed our whole life about the government, about the church, about the Bible has been total deception, has been lies, has been cover-ups. Mm -hmm. And so we're open to the fact that, you know, the whole entire Democrat-Republican system of government might be just a big, you know, triggered, ho uh, like, rigged hoax. We're, we're willing to believe that, you know, Washington, D.C. was set out with, you know, Illuminati symbols and the, you know, the obelisks of Osiris and all this. Like, we're, we're willing to see that, Washington might have been a Mason and Ben Franklin mm -hmm. was a pervert. And, you know, we're, so our whole entire concept of our country and now there's all this stuff coming out about authentication and maritime law and all, all of this stuff where you know, Federal Reserve Bank and 9-11 um, and the sinking of the Titanic and JFK, all this stuff, right? So if we are open-minded enough to think, okay, maybe I was absolutely wrong about the entire history of my country, the entire economic system here, and, and even the whole church and some of the roots of Catholicism and Christianity, if you, if you take the roots all the way back, there's a lot of, you know, Mithra in there. There's a lot of Roman stuff in there. So if we're going to come to a place where everything's been shattered, the paradigm has been shattered, we realize a lot of this has been smoke and mirrors, then why is eschatology that one thing that's never been touched and has never been affected and never has never been corrupted? Why is this, why are the very limited eschatological, you know, buckets that we've been told it's either this, this or this, why are those somehow sacred that, because it, those sort of things were not always preached. And, you know, we preach, we preach revelation through 21st century, very post-Stoic, post-modern Christian eyes. It was not written by a post-modern American. That, that book was written mm -hmm. by, you know, a Semitic man who lived in a completely different century. And so the idea that I love is, you know, this goes back to, I think, some of the stuff we were talking about in the stuff that's only going to be available for, for the Patreons, and that is fear of man will get you every time fear of man. So if my entire eschatology is really rooted in, I'm afraid to die. I'm afraid to be tortured. 
if, if every single thing that we read in the Bible has to somehow bend to the fact that I'm never going to get hurt, a hair on my head is never going to get singed, I'm never going to break a nail, if that's our doctrine, yeah. then we're not going to be open to some of the other clues in Scripture. And God has never been real black and white, from what I can tell. There, there seems to be nuances, like even take, um, take the Red Sea. We can either drown in the sea or get killed by Pharaoh's army because we can go forward or we can go backward. We have been groomed into a dualistic view of the world. Everything is black or white, red pill or blue pill, Democrat or Republican, gay or straight, man or woman. We, we've been forced into this two-dimensional world where God is operating in a thousand dimensions. It, it's like this massive diamond with all these facets and we, we haven't even seen half of them, but somehow we're putting God into this box where your son can return at one of three points in world history. And where in the world did that get written down? Where's that the rule? And so one of the things that I'd like to just explore intellectually and philosophically, this is just musing. I'm not going to, put this in stone and try to find the ark to put it in. But uh, my theory is more, what if the reason why pre-tribbers, mid-tribbers, and post-tribbers can all find so much biblical support for their view, what if the reason they can all find biblical support for their view is because all three are true? So let's go back to the military concept. In the military, when a war is over and the the, the decoration ceremony is, is about to, to occur, it, it, it's not like everybody gets their participation award and everybody gets their silver star and everybody gets their purple heart. Your, your, your award ceremony is, is contingent upon what role you played in that war and what you accomplished. And we even see this concept on judgment day, like the Bema seat, which is the judgment, it, it's been so misconstrued. The Bema seat isn't a judgment seat where we all go to heaven and the jumbotrons get turned on and everybody sees, you know, me stealing the chapstick and, and you know, all, all the stupid stuff. Um, the, the Bema seat is, is not a time of humiliation. This is a time where the people who have faithfully served the, the, Yehovah Tsevaot, the, the, the God of the armies of heaven, have have are, are being rewarded for a sacrificial life of holiness. And by holiness, I mean they departed from Babylon. Okay. So this is an award ceremony. And even the word Bema seat, it, it was a reference to the the Olympics where you've got the gold, the silver, and the bronze medalists stand on that that platform. Mm -hmm. That's the Bema seat. That's where you're standing to get your medal. And the Bema seat has positions for gold, silver, and bronze. Not it, this idea that every single Christian who's ever lived is going to all like jump onto that top gold medal spot and be teetering on this thing and everyone's getting their gold medal. So when you look at the scriptures that talk about the end, we have references to people who die trying to defend the vulnerable. You've got the you got the Jamie Waldens out there. You got the people with the the spirit of, of a warrior. They're not going to stand for this. They're they're not going to 
live underground and drink their urine through a purification straw. They are going to go out in a blaze of glory on the battlefield fighting for what's right. They're going to charge out there with their weapons. They're probably going to die trying, but they're going to die and they're going to get that medal of honor. They laid down their life. They were, they were the heroes. They get like the top honor. Uh, but then you've got people that the church is, is, is trying to make out to be like, these are the weak ones. There's ones that are tested for 10 days. And after the 10 days, they're beheaded. That's still a glorious position because you're a martyr. You get a martyr's crown for that. You get a martyr. You get the purple heart for that. You know, yeah. you, you, it, it's a position of honor. And, and so then you've got people that are blessed because they remained till the end. Mm -hmm. But, but if we're all raptured, then we all remained to the end. So but the, the people that remain to the end means that maybe there's a group of people that do survive, a remnant that survives through the flood, like in the days of Noah. Eight people survived that tribulation. Yeah. That, that was the Old Testament end times, end of everything. Everybody died. Eight people lived through it. So what if there is a group of people that do survive to the end? And they're not in some torture chamber getting their fingernails pulled out and being forced to drink their own urine. What if these people are being hidden in God? What if there's a hint here in Psalm 27 where it, it says that um, in, in, the, in the day of trouble, when war surrounds you on every side, he will set me high upon a rock. And this is after talking about being in his temple. What if there is some sort of dimensional atmosphere where there are people that are hidden to the end like in the days of Noah and they come through the end what if this is the you know they get the prize too because they they survive till the end so here we have three different people three different categories all three of highly decorated military honors because they all faithfully got their souls in the end and they, they survived but we've got people that died in valor on the battlefield yeah we have people who survived torture and gave up their own lives because the treasure buried in the field was greater to them than their life. Mm -hmm. And then we've got the people who remained until the end, hidden in Christ with God because they were his bride and his chosen people. All three highly, highly decorated people in, in heaven. So this, this limitation we put on God by... You either have to rescue all of us so that, you know, uh, you know, one hair doesn't get out of place. Uh, or the only other option is that we're stuck down here as all the bowls of wrath are being poured out. And we're all going to experience this like torture. And, and what this does and what I don't like about these categories is it makes the entire church dread the coming of Jesus. Mm. You see what he has done here. We're supposed to be praying, according to the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. Mm -hmm. Every day we're supposed to be saying thy kingdom come. So if every day we're doing everything in our power to stop the end times, you know, let's thwart the enemy. Let's do everything we can to, to put an end to this and reestablish order in America and get our republic back. Mm -hmm. We're working against the, the Lord's Prayer there. We're working against our own creed. Thy kingdom come means that all hell breaks loose when he shows up. And if you're dreading the moment 
that like lightning from east to west, our king comes and shows himself to save all of mankind from this oppression. If you're dreading that day, then there's something wrong with your eschatology. There's something you're not understanding because when he comes, evil is vanquished. And yep. the, next, the next thing that happens, whether you have to suffer a little or you don't, the next thing that happens is you're on a Bema seat. Yeah. With the God of heaven saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And he's putting a gold medal around your neck. And we have been taught as a church to dread that day. Yeah, It's a, it's a sin. It's a crime. It's a crime. Man, that's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's such a good point. And it's so easy for us to lose perspective of that because we're too busy trying to move pieces on the chessboard. Yeah. You know? They only come out at night and demonic oppression sleep paralysis that's really your milieu and um that's really what you have done deep dives on but we've been talking about sra how does satanic ritual abuse factor into all of the things that you have really studied over the past yeah, yeah. several so, years this was this was sort of a, a happy accident i guess i don't know uh, so when I was still living in Pennsylvania and my dad uh, was calling me and freaking out over this like amazing guy he just found and it was Russ Isdar. And he had gone to a couple conferences and met Russ and heard him talk. And um, dad and Russ actually got to be friends and um, we got to know Russ a little bit. But uh, <clears throat> when when dad started getting into this, it was right after my mom had died. And I'm just like, I'm in deep grief. The last thing in the world I want to talk about is all this horrible, like he was starting to tell me about, you know, satanic ritual abuse and stuff. And I'm like, this is not the time. This is not the time I want to absorb this stuff. And I had heard of it before. And um, so it wasn't like brand, brand new, but eventually I, I started going to conferences with dad. And at one point we asked that inevitable question, why are we going to all these conferences? Because at some point we're accountable for this information. And if, if this is something God wants us to know about and have an understanding of and giving us the ability to articulate it to others, at some point we're going to be accountable for all of this, you know, knowledge that we're being given. And I thought about, <clears throat> you know, oh my gosh, what if, oh no, oh no. You know, what, anytime you think that God might be calling you into some sort of deliverance ministry, your mind immediately goes to like the exorcist with Linda Blair's head spinning around and you're like right. turning yourself in people's bedroom with like, you know, green, like pea soup flying Every all over. Every day is a horror show. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, no, you know, and because I had gone through so many years of sleep paralysis, which was a terrifying experience, my thought was if I can't even really handle a sleep paralysis scenario where I'm just alone in my bedroom, how in the world, like, I'm not cut out for this kind of thing. Like, no way, man. And so it, it sort of freaked me out. And uh, Tom Dunn and I ended up meeting through a mutual friend. And the first time I met him, I, I didn't think I'd ever see him again. And it, it's not like, oh, we hit it off and we were best buds the first time we met. It's like, I I never expected it to, to happen. So through a stream of events over the course of three or four years, I started writing for Real Dark News, which is the sort of like the news site that is uh, operated through through the black. And um, I just did that in silence under under a pen name of VJ. 
And that was all I was doing was just like, hey, writing is my gig. That's my gift God's given me. I'm going to have the luxury of just hiding in a corner with a pen name and leave me alone. You know, that was kind of my nice. Solid. My take, right. Exactly. So, <laughs> oh, so anyway, when it when it became apparent that God was actually calling me into this, you know, I started uh, taking a lot of the Rusty Star courses, all of which are free on the Shatter the Darkness website. Uh, you just scroll down to a free training and hundreds and hundreds of hours worth of teaching. Um, and a lot of it's on spiritual warfare, but that he also, you know, Russ was a, was a pastor and he was a preacher and he, his main heart was to preach the gospel. And so he's got stuff about uh, the book of Acts and Revelation. He's got other stuff in there too, just amazing stuff. So anyway, um, that's how I first was introduced into like the deep dive of SRA and learned more about it. And so this is a tough topic to talk about because of the cognitive dissonance on behalf of the church. Nobody right. wants to believe this. Okay. And some Nobody churches practice it. Yes, that's true too. So when you start to speak about this, one of two things happens. The enemy wants to shut you down because they don't want to be exposed before the right time. So all the trolls come out mm -hmm. with their empty threats and, and their nonsense but then the church shuts you down. This isn't real. You know, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. But what does happen every time is there is a third, much smaller group of people whose hearts awaken. And they're like, yes, it's horrible. And we don't need to go over every horrible graphic detail. But now knowing that this exists, I'm accountable in some way, whether it's intercessory prayer or all the way to doing um, counseling and ministry. And there's a whole bunch of gray area in between there. But it certainly wasn't what I was looking to, to do or get involved in. And I was very, I was willing from day one to do it, but I was very scared that I would be a sitting duck because, you know, you think, you think about all the horror movies you've seen, like all the vampire movies like Salem's Lot and Fright Night, where the the guy, like the creature brings out the cross and the vampire just crushes it and laughs at him and says, you, you don't have faith. And, you uh -huh. know, and because every single person on planet Earth is a is a sinner and there's so much stuff you don't have worked out in your own life and you you have guilt and shame over things and you have rejection issues and you have fear. And and so you just think, well, I'm just going to be sifted like wheat. Like I'm just going to be a target, you know? And so I think that there was a transitional period where I had to get my sea legs, so to speak. And um, part of what prepared me and gave me courage and gave me an understanding that I was able to do it was some of the stuff that we were talking about in the Patreon portion of our discussion. And that is the things that God called me to do in 2020 and 2021, where I had to, uh, walk in faith instead of I had to, I had to shut out all the voices of the fear of man. And there was a lot of things I was called to do. And I don't think I was called to do those things because I'm more spiritual or more holy or, or, you know, less I I think that God very specifically orchestrated 2020 and 2021 for me as mm -hmm. a boot camp. It was where he was showing me 
that he would reveal things to me. He would tell me what to pray. He would give me the names of things that needed to be prayed against. He would give me courage. He would, he would overcome the fears of man. And so uh, I don't have a lot of, of pride in the things that I did in 2020 and 2021 because I was very scared through the whole process. And yeah. I see now in retrospect that God was actually training me for a ministry that had 2020 never happened, I would not be ready for. And so there, there were other things going on there. So uh, I, I can go into like just the general definition of what SRA is, but I, I want to pause just in case you guys have something to add. No, um, no, go for it. Yeah, absolutely. So SRA is basically, if you Google it, for the most part, you're going to find a lot of disinformation. You're going to find that this is false memory and it is, uh, it, it, it's just satanic panic. So you're going to get a lot of disinformation that this doesn't exist. And there's going to be a lot of convincing arguments that is going to quell the fears and the church is going to breathe a collective sigh of relief that it was just this big uh, hoax put out there to, to scare people. But the fact of the matter is, it is very true. And it may not have always been called SRA, but this goes all the way back, all the way back to the days of Cain, to antediluvian times. You know, like I said, they called it different things back then, but it's the same thing. And even though the word satanic is in there, SRA stands for satanic ritual abuse. Uh, there's also ritual abuse. Uh, and there are groups and societies that basically perpetuate this same agenda that might not be satanic. Uh, Cause a lot of the SRAs like true SRA survivors are usually from generational Satanist families. It's a long, long, long bloodline. Mm -hmm. uh, you're born into it. Uh, and so uh, if you are taken, like if you are abducted and used in one of these rituals, it, it is, ritual abuse because even though you know that you weren't in the satanic ritual bloodline you know so uh satanic ritual abuse and ritual abuse kind of go hand in hand depending on if you're on the inside or the outside of the family right gotcha. but it, it's not just uh card carrying satanic families that are doing this as well there are militarized versions of this there are secret society versions of this and uh, it lies undercover even in the, the world of sex trafficking. There's a lot of this going on. And there, it also happens in the BDSM community, which a lot of people, thanks to the Hollywood, Hollywoodized version of Fifty Shades of Grey, think that this is just a bunch of consenting adults having fun with whips and chains. But if you actually know what's going on in the BDSM movement in that community, it's in essence the same exact thing as, as satanic ritual abuse. It is women and men being groomed without their knowledge into this lifestyle in, in small baby step stages. And it involves um, high powered people who are the masters. And it involves really all of the same activities and, and goals. So if, if you go into that thinking, oh, this will be fun, this is just this lascivious little group of perverts and we can do whatever we want. It, it 
at the end of the day, it has very little to do with the sex and, and very little to do with pleasure actually as well. So um, if anyone else is interested in more information on that, Through the Black has had two recent shows where a woman has come out of that community and exposes the crap out of it. I mean, she doesn't hold anything back. Um, and so I think the names of those shows are Chainbreaker and um, I'm not sure. I've, I've got it posted on my Instagram, but there's there's two shows where we, we've got her on there. I'll see if I can look it up real quick without distracting myself from what I'm talking about here. But I anyway. Think, well, while you're looking it up, what do you think, what is the goal of SRA? So Why? the goal, yep. So the goal, and this kind of plays a little bit into what we were talking about earlier with the Black Awakening, uh, the, the, the goal is, this goes into the ethos of a generational satanic family. This goes all the way back. Read Gary Wayne's book. If you've got a year, <laughs> Gary, <laughs> Gary Wayne's book, it goes all the way back into the days of Cain. It started with Cain. That's how long it's been around. Now, they didn't call it satanic ritual abuse or probably didn't even call it devil worship back then, but it was the blood drinking cults of Kish and the progeny of Cain. They were in basically the earliest iterations of secret societies, but they were dragon courts. They were blood drinking cults. And uh, this is where we get some of our modern vampire mythos, but that is highly caricaturized. Uh, obviously, the blood drinking that was going on in the days of Cain wasn't for turning people into vampires or, um, or, or, or making slaves. It had to do with immor immortality. Uh, we see this carried in today as we talk about the adrenochrome because the reason why they're doing this is they want eternal life without the messiah they're coming up with their own ways and so transhumanism and technology and this adrenochrome this this drinking of blood it, it's a it's a formula for immortality it's eternal life without jesus christ it's a, it's beating the system yeah. um that's that's what they're doing they want to beat the system now if, if you, you never die you never have to answer to god no judgment yep and so this is given away in much more clarity in the book of Jasher. And it's talking about the days of Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. I think it's in Jasher chapter four, I think. And it gives a little bit more detail about what they were doing there in the Valley of Shinar building this tower. In, in the Bible, in the biblical narrative, it just says, let us, let us build a tower that reaches to the heavens. And that's all they give you or that's all that remains in our modern versions, right? In the book of Jasher, it says very point blank in a way that almost mirrors the five I will statements of Satan in the book of Isaiah. It says that the purpose of this tower is we will ascend to heaven. We will remove God from the throne. We will set up our own idols in the temple. We will worship our idols there. This, this Tower of Babel wasn't an architectural feat. This wasn't some sort of 
antiquated version of let's build like the World Trade Center and see who can have the, the tallest building in the Guinness Book. Um, this had to do with the fact that the mountains that had been used previously as stargates, we, we know that God visited his people on the top of mountains where Moses was on Sinai. Uh, he, the reason he was able to visit with God on Sinai, God didn't just show up, you know, in hiking boots and sit on the top of the hill. That, that was a dimensional portal on, on the top of Sinai. There was a dimensional portal on the top of Mount Hermon where the watchers came down. Uh, there's probably still something going on up there because there's a UN base up there and there's plaques up there that, that have very strange inscriptions about the gods and, and such. And so what this Tower of Babel was, was an attempt to build a mountain higher than the mountains that were naturally made. They needed a higher mountain. Uh, maybe they hadn't figured out where Everest was at that point, or they didn't have the clothing and the long underwear for it, but they needed something taller than Hermon because they needed to get back into the throne room to yeah. overthrow and kill God. Yeah. And I can get all sorts of freakish on you guys and talk about uh, the, the, the Aramaic meaning of the word uh, to lift up. Um, it, the, the word uh, NASA, which is pronounced differently, but spelled the same as NASA. Is, is this a modern passing of the of the ancient people to the modern people where, Hey, our little tower thing didn't work out. We need something higher. Mm -hmm. And if you even go to NASA's website and you look at their vision statement, it, it doesn't, it, it flat out says that they're seeking for knowledge for the betterment of mankind. It even has that word knowledge in it. Like, you know, the, the, the tree of knowledge. And, and so there, there's something more going on here than building a tower and sending rocket ships into space. This is an agenda that goes all the way back to Cain. They were thrown from heaven. They were locked out. They lost their first estate and they've been planning ever since to get back. I will ascend to the stars. And uh, they want to get back into the throne room and retain that, that scepter of power. They want to rule the nations and the, the, the long and the short of it is their goal that they think that they're going to accomplish out of their hubris is they're going to kill the pre-incarnate Messiah and now the Messiah. They're going to kill Jesus Christ. They are going to take those keys um, back from him. And so what, what the generational Satanists are, whether they realize it or not, they've been told they're part of this big whole age long, you're special, you're chosen, you're the chosen people, we're going to rule the world. They've been told all sorts of grandiose, flattering things. Many of them probably are of the bloodline of those original um, cults of Kish and of Cain. And they're, they're caring, they're just passing the baton through the generations. They have a single minded goal. And it's been the same from the beginning, we're going to get back into that throne room. And we're going to overthrow the, the Messiah. And we're going to rule this place. And so the, the generational Satanists are basically the thralls. They're, they're the people that have been duped into 
carrying out all of this work because they're, they're boots on the ground, right? A lot of these entities are disembodied. They're, they're locked up in the abyss in chains. They're in the astral and they, they can't really come down here. They can lure us up there, but if they come down here, they've already tried that once and they know what happens. And so they need boots on the ground to put infrastructure in place and to, to prepare the minds and the hearts of the people for their Messiah. And so the, the goal of all of this ritual abuse is to mold this, this perfect group of slaves to be boots on the ground for these, these entities that can't do the work themselves. And the reason why there's so much treachery and bloodshed and ritual torture and sexual abuse and crimes beyond anything I want to even get into on this program is because to use Robert Monroe's term, the louche, if you will, there is an unleashing of power and there is an ability to open these energy fields, these portals, these stargates, whatever you want to call them. Uh, these things are opened and generated through revels, through bloodshed. Um, if you go back to the Old Testament, why were the Israelites, when they got caught up in idols, why were they always getting busted with these <laughs> massive like orgies and parties and drinking? And, you know, why were they, was it simply just, this is a party? Hey man. Oh, like Babylon working. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the blood orgy from event horizon. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know? Exactly. I, I mean, it's there's a reason why that stuff is so disturbing because, well, a, it's so far beyond the pale, like no one ever experiences it, and b, like it probably works. Yeah, yeah. Because yep. that whole BDSM thing, you know, I've known girls who you know were into that kind of stuff, and like it was always like, like, uh, look, I'm not that guy. Like, <laughs> I'm okay, thanks, you know. But like, but I've noticed that like all that kind of stuff, whether it was um straight or not straight like all that stuff it's not about it's not about the sex it's not about the nerve endings it's not about any of that it's it's like this spiritual violative kind of thing that is like really about submission and compliance yes but on a like really deep level and every time i have any brush with hollywood like it on any level and it's happened three times now every single time there's always that element there. Mm -hmm. There's always this like exploitative, submissive, and, but it's not, even though it's a physical thing, it's obviously not physical. Like yeah. that's not where it stops. You know? Yeah. And that's how dangerous and potent it is. They, they've weaponized sex. Yeah. So to the stupid human beings who think it's all just about the orgasm, mm -hmm don't understand and we we even know this on a small level like take all the satanists and stuff out of it we already know that soul ties are created through that yep. and anyone who's been through a bad breakup can attest to things like this and there are physiological aspects to sex where uh brain chemicals are released where there's a bonding that makes those sorts of breakups then even more difficult there are also now uh, now some of this information has been run with and it's, it, you know, it's been exaggerated and taken to an extreme, but they have done um, tests with flies of all things. And they've determined that there is genetic material in the man's sperm 
that a woman re- retains permanently. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, permanently. Yeah, it, it happens with women all the time. Yeah. Yep. So it, it doesn't necessarily mean an old genetic code and a DNA sequence and, and all that. But what it does mean is that there's a chemical in a woman's brain that is only present if she's given birth to a male child or she's had sex. And you can you can see then um, if you if you test a virgin, she's not going to have this particular chemical in the brain. Um, so what happens then and what they've determined with these flies, with this fly experiment is they, they take a female fly and they take two males and they take a small fly and a large fly. So that's the way they tell the difference between the genetics. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they will have one of the flies mate with the female, but then they'll have the second fly actually fertilize the egg. So he's the actual one like responsible for, for the, the offspring. Mm-hmm. And what they've determined is, so it, if a female fly mates with a large male fly, she will give birth to a fly that grows large. If you have a female that mates with a small fly, she'll have an offspring that turns into a small fly. So what they're, real, what they're recognizing through these experiments is if she mates with a small fly, but a large fly fertilizes the egg, she has a small fly offspring. So the physical genetic code that's transferred to her offspring is not the one that fertilized her egg. It was the, it was the initial encounter. And so, um, so what they're learning from this is basically all, all of this to say is that there are physiological, mental, physical, and spiritual repercussions from that sex act. And so it's not just like, the Bible said it's wrong. You're bad. You're you're a slut. You're a tramp. You you know you're a gigolo. It's not it's not about that was dirty. You should have waited till you were married. You know we 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 don't understand the doors that get opened. We don't understand the complete power and ability that that act has to even change who we are at, as as a core person. We we've all known those few people that have went off the deep end and had an addiction and they, they don't end well, you know? And, and so I I think we have to get away as Christians from thinking that unwanted pregnancy and venereal disease are the only two consequences and, Oh, God will forgive me. It's okay. I never got pregnant and I didn't get a venereal disease. Mm So I, Oh, phew, I, I dodged a bullet. Maybe you did. Maybe you didn't because there are, there are, there are, spiritual aspects of that where when you are performing it out of context doors are opening you might be attracting energies and and entities that are attaching to you and that might carry in the dna that might affect your children like who you give to so i think we have to i really wish we could get away from this sort of victorian like aspect in the Mm -hmm. church we can't we can't talk about sex in the pulpit and when we do it's just dirty and bad and like we're raising a whole generation of young kids who either don't know a thing about sex at all mm-hmm. or they're only told every day it's bad it's bad it's bad it's bad it's bad what is going to happen like let's say for a female it, if you're a female who's been raised in the church and you've been homeschooled and the only thing you've ever heard about sex is about you know only slutty girls do that and it's bad and it's gross and it's dirty and it's a sin. It's a sin. It's a sin. 
what is that going to look like for that woman after 18, 19, 20, 25 years of being in that mindset where all of a sudden she's married and overnight because of a piece of paper and a ring, now mm -hmm. it's it's wonderful. Like, how do you get over that mindset? We really, I really wish we were doing a better job in, in church of explaining uh, the spiritual components on both sides of, of sex, because I think that we're doing so much damage to our kids by, on one hand, uh, demonizing sex to the point where they're going to have trouble enjoying it, even in the right context, or just making it such a topic of grace that kids don't understand that by the time they get to the wedding, it might already be, des be destroyed. Yeah, this is another one of those topics we were talking about, like in uh, where you take something out of the Bible and you're not giving people, you're not diving deep enough for people to really grasp why they need to be concerned about this, why this is relevant to them. Yeah. yeah. You just yeah. Want to beat them over the head with it and tell them it's wrong. Well, and you're, you're not going to get very far. They're still going to go out and mess up. They yeah. have to have a deeper reason to say no or to, they, they have to understand why it's important. Yeah. And it's so hilarious how, once again, science circles back to a deeper understanding of what the Bible has basically been trying to tell us all along. You know, like um, my, my former um, Ranger buddy, Nathan, yep. uh, we talk about this all the time about like how, you know, you don't want anything to do with a girl with a high body count. Yeah. Because because like, I mean, truly, you yeah. know, there's a because there is like this genetic component of exactly like they have run studies apparently on people now of like the fly test. And there is like a genetic component where like these women start to basically be mutants, for, like for lack of a better word, like you can have mutant offspring or you become mutants because you become like, you know, a, a carousel of Petri dish, you mm. know, of genetic material you know, yeah. and like, and God bless them. I mean, you know, so many people haven't been taught anything better, you know, and a lot of them, especially girls have been, you know, the victims of abuse. So like there is this, that's the other thing about, about ritual abuse or any kind of abuse is that it, it tends to like implant this deep seated guilt and cognitive reframing to where you think like, that's the only way you can operate. You know, it's it's like it's just as destructive as like a girl becoming a stripper, you know, uh, in the sense of like you are meshing things that are not supposed to be. You're yeah. crossing the streams. Yeah. You know, yeah. And so, yeah, that fly experiment. I mean, truly, like it's. Yeah. And no one talks about it. I mean, you know, we talk about fly sex on the goslings. Yeah, at least once a quarter. This is our quarterly fly sex talk. Yeah. <laughs> this week on NPR with Vicky right. we're discussing <laughs> fly copulation. Fly sex conference 2023. <laughs> I could make a really crass joke about that right now with a little oh bit my of goodness. I'm not well, going. You know, it's interesting too. Um, how this also plays into the whole uh, now popular Anunnaki, we are your progenitors, you know, uh, thing that people are talking about, right? Mm -hmm. So if you look at it like to, you know, as an example, in Braveheart, obviously, you know, the whole, right? So when, when you breed something out and you become the majority, you then have the power, you have the scepter, right? So there is an aspect too, where 
sex and breeding becomes a way of taking over power. We see this even all through antiquity with queens of one nation or princess, prince, princesses would marry the kings because it was a way of gaining more of the kingdoms and more power. And so uh, marriage and mating and breeding has always been a part of world domination. And so I know we're getting into the realms of sci-fi here, but what's what's interesting to me, I was talking to my dad about this the other day, you know, casual stuff you talk about over Mexican food, right? And I was saying to my dad, you know, if if what L.A. Marzulli and these people are saying is true, and that the, the great deception is that a UFO lands on the White House lawn and the Anunnaki come out and they say, we are your progenitors. Mm-hmm. Listen to this. Here's a twist. If the, if the watchers came down and they mated with women and they are to a degree still around these bloodlines that came back into effect after the flood through Nimrod, who became a Raphaim, and if these bloodlines of Cain are still in, in weaker iterations present mm-hmm. on the earth, every time we intermingle with these, these bloodlines, that is then affecting that woman, her blood, her genetic input, her DNA, her offspring are now melding with those bloodlines. So if if the Anunnaki have this prima nocta thing going on where they're getting the whole world stirred up into a frenzy and go around and sleep with whoever you want and as many people as you want and there's no consequences and don't worry about it and you've got everybody jumping everybody there is a point where when the Anunnaki say we're your progenitors they're actually telling the truth You know, Christians kind of say this like, oh, they're going to come down and they're going to tell a lie because we know God created us. Yes, God did create us. But if through the course of thousands of years, through disobedience, we've been out sleeping with whoever we want and all these people and we're taking on all that genetic code. And now the world has opened up and, you know, we're we're able to get all over the world. Everything has now been mingled. And then you look at salvation, look at salvation, not as a magic prayer, or I'm going to go to church now and I'm going to stop listening to rock music. Like if that's what Christianity is to you, if you look at it rather as, as blood, like the whole entire thing, all the way from the sacrificial system of the old Testament to the the death of, of Christ on the cross, there is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood, blood and blood has to do with the menstrual cycle it has to do with life. It has to do with salvation. It has to do with the cross. And so when, when you pray to receive Christ and you're dying to the old man and baptism is representative of going down into the grave and then rising up as a resurrection into a new body, a new flesh, that is metaphorically and perhaps literally a blood transfusion. So If I pray a prayer and I receive Jesus Christ, here's another thing that happens on death. When you die, uh, not only do you get a blood transfusion when you are risen in Christ and are now living with Christ in God, another thing happens when we die. Every contract is broken. So when you die, you don't have a mortgage anymore. 
You don't pay taxes anymore. Your social security number gets retired. You're no longer married. You're, you're not legally bound. And so all of the contracts. So I think the reason why baptism and salvation is a metaphor for death is because it breaks every contract that we've wittingly or unwittingly made with the spirit realm oh, through sin, through disobedience, through sexual intercourse with the mingling of other people's blood and DNA and genetics. We're getting washed clean. We come up, we've been voided. All of that stuff's been voided. We have a fresh start. This is why the hyper grace stuff doesn't fit. If, if I was mingled with the blood of Cain and, and I'm a seed of Cain and I get a second chance and I receive the blood of Christ and I now have pure, you know, Jesus Christ atoning blood in me. And I'm now of the bloodline of the, of the, of the winning kingdom. Why in the world would I use grace at that point to go and get tainted blood put back into me? Yeah. Mm. Why would I do that? I, I've been saved from death. I, my blood has been purified. My genetics have been purified. My DNA, my bloodline, my entire identity. I'm now hidden with Christ in God. Why in the world would I go out and mingle with the seed of Cain ever again? Man, that's awesome stuff. That's awesome. Making Gary Wayne proud. <laughs> yeah. Well, you just blew my mind with talking about baptism. I've I know. never heard that ever. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I've never, I mean, I knew it was like baptism was, you know, symbolic of your death and being mm. raised to life in a new, you know, raised to a new life in him. Mm. But I've never heard that before. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the the covenant breaking is something no one ever talks about, you know. And that's something that, like, especially with you know the Nephilim bloodlines, you know, because we we wonder that sometimes when you get deep into the weeds about Nephilim bloodlines, you're like, well, man, is that just like a cursed people, you know, mm -hmm. at that point? So I mean, no one's ever talked about that before, like, yeah. You know, that there is still hope, you know, mm -hmm. or like no matter where you come from, you know, no matter what your lineage is. Yeah. Very what, careful. What, you might uh, start dancing on the restitution of all things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's sad to me is that the church has lost sight of how integral blood is to the whole entire equation. Yeah. But the, but the occult hasn't. Right. The occult is not at all. They understand that blood is the linchpin of who gets the scepter of power and runs the world. They get yeah. it. We don't. Yeah. Um, well, and there's always, uh, you know, there's always blood packs, you know, covenants made in blood. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's always there. In fact, um, I think Nick had one question about um, like covenant thresholds. Um, Sort of in the yeah. same vein as that. Yeah, but, kind uh, of. Uh, you know, the I'm giving Nick a moment to gather himself. Because yeah, he was so moved by the dude. I'm still thing. picking myself up <laughs> off the floor after what you said about baptism. <laughs> I just, that just blew my mind. And, and a He's all thing, and I'm and I'm going to get into my question. But it also, you know, thinking along the same line and how much it has to do with 
you know, blood, bloodlines. Yeah. Um, let's say you have two people that have been baptized. They're happily married. And because I know there are there are some people in my circle that this has happened to. Mm. Adultery at that point has been committed. Mm. Both are believers or both have been baptized, allegedly believers, but both have been baptized. Mm. The guy goes out and is living this life in adultery and then eventually that comes to light and he says you know i'm gonna kind of i'm gonna stick with that mm-hmm. and leaves his wife and kids mm. actually leaves his wife but tries to keep his kids mm. uh, it's a real real dirtbag you know? <laughs> but let's say he you know and he and he married his mistress uh and now he wants to be forgiven now he's feeling remorse now he's feeling Right. Now that I'm okay and I'm out of the fire, now I want like how when well in in the context of the the tainted going back to the tainted bloodline after baptism, how does what is the prescription for that man's redemption? By the way, Vicky, this is not me. I'm not that cool. (laughs) (laughs) Like, how does that man come back? Is there a way for him to come back and be forgiven now? Yeah. Well, we know from scripture that there is because the woman who the Pharisees wanted to stone, she wasn't just caught in the act. She was caught in the act of adultery. So that means that there was a, a married man involved and uh, who, who was strangely against all of the edicts of the Torah, not present for this trial, but I digress. Uh, so we, we know that, that Jesus himself at that point told told the Pharisees, you know, hey, he who sinned, cast the first stone. They all left with their tail between their, their legs. And uh, the fact is, this is what most people in the church miss. Like, we're so good in the church about quoting half of a verse. <laughs> um, he, he forgave the woman caught in the act of adultery. But then he said in the modern vernacular, knock it off. Yeah. It sounds so poetic when you say, go and sin no more, right? He's like, <laughs> right. He's like I'm going to forgive you. Yeah. Uh, because this was a great lesson for, for these Pharisees who are out doing the same thing. But here, here, now that you've been washed clean, don't even think about it. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what where grace is misunderstood in, in our modern world is grace exists. It's true, it's real, it's unfathomable. But grace is there to to rescue us from sin and death. And so it grace empowers us to pursue holiness and sanctification. Grace isn't there like an eraser. Uh, grace is there that if we truly have come into a covenant with Jesus, a marriage, it, the grace is the grace to not even desire to cheat on him. Not grace. Isn't every single Friday night when we get home from the bar, he says, it's okay. I love you. That's not grace. That's being a chump actually. But, um, grace is, when you are betrothed to this super spouse, you are so madly in love with them that the thought of adultery never even enters your mind again. That's grace. Yeah. 
And so we have completely bastardized it. And so I believe that that grace is absolutely available to someone who's committed adultery or someone who's done anything, fill in the blank. But it's this repetitive rinse and repeat. Every Friday you come home, you go to the confessional booth every single week and the same, oops, I did it again. That That's not doctrine. That's not theology. That's not Jesus Christ. That that's a Britney Spears lyric, you guys. Like, oops, I did yeah. it again. Knock it off. Like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yep. It's addiction and enabling. Yeah, exactly. So there's a huge difference between um, grace that covers a, a life-changing, regrettable, deeply grievous act and grace that covers the same willful act of rebellion over and over and over again, because that person has no desire to be faithful to their spouse. Yeah. Excellent point. Well, let me, let me ask you about this. And I know this is kind of a, a little bit of a left turn, but it is related to threshold covenants and violating those covenants. Mm-hmm. This is something we've heard a, a lot about in the news. Over Very the topical. Sever, several weeks. Yeah. But there's a lot of talk about, artificial intelligence having this sentient nature at certain you know you know advanced levels people are really getting kind of skittish around the possibilities of what this thing could possibly become Mm -hmm. do you think curiosity in ai and pursuing it and learning it and starting to treat it like it were a sentient do you think that could constitute somehow some kind of a a violation or a threshold covenant of establish some sort of threshold covenant of some way. Absolutely. Now the big question is where do, where and when do we draw the line? You know, at what point do algorithms and ones and zeros turn into sentience? And I, I think we have, I think we're there, but they haven't necessarily told us we're there yet. Um, But like with, uh, like with chat GP, is it chat GPT? Yeah. This there's something different here. Uh, mm-hmm. So divination is absolutely a sin, and we see great consequences of people who who practice that in in the Old Testament. We see Saul. Saul lost the entire kingdom for that. And mm-hmm. um, so soothsaying divination divination is talking to spirits. So um, here's where the Chat GPT thing gets really weird for me. Uh, first of all, there's nothing new under the sun. Now we've got a real technological version now, but if you go back into antiquity, they had something called a brazen head. Have you heard of the brazen heads? Never. Yeah. So this is, this is also, uh, refers to North in, in Norse mythology, Odin, Odin's head of Mirmir. M-I-R-M-I-R. And the, the, the mythos for Odin in, in the Norse mythology is that uh, Odin chopped off the head of Mirmir and his, his opponent, and then he carried the head around with them, and it was like a, a Snow White magic mirror. And he would ask this head you know, questions, and the question had absolute knowledge, could answer any question, and it could predict the future. And so... Um, this idea of the brazen head, Archimedes, Roger Bacon, Pope Sylvester II, these are all historical references to people who created and or utilized a brazen head. 
it's called brazen because they were they were sculpted out of bronze and in many cases the whole inner workings are also sculpted so if you if you chopped it open it wouldn't just be solid brass they would they would literally sculpt the brain and the inner workings and then they would sculpt it it was very complex and then they would do a ritual and they would invite uh, a being to to occupy this vessel and then the the brazen head would kind of be like the magic eight ball or the crystal ball um and it, it was nothing like you know the lips weren't moving and stuff it but supposedly these heads could answer any question you asked <clears throat> and predict the future so ask it any question just thinking mm -hmm. i was just thinking that Mm -hmm. Like I, I now call as a joke, you know, I used to call my phone Molek and now I call it my brazen head. Like it's just <laughs> but um so and if you if you Google this, it'll be like in mythology and legends and stories and you know whatever. But for for those of us that you know, it's like mm -hmm. I think there's probably something to this. And so now we have a quantum version of the talking um brazen head. We've got we've got a chat GPT app that can answer any question you ask. Mm -hmm. And through qubit computing, we now have the ability, the last I checked, the quantum computer could truncate down to 17 possibilities, the outcome of any future event. And I think that they've, they've, they've gotten it down to, to like 11 or nine or something now, but yeah. as this technology increases, they will eventually have a qubit computer that with a hundred percent accuracy will be able to predict the future. So wow. be between quantum computing and uh, AI chat, chat stuff, I think that there's going to be a line we cross where it's no longer algorithms. It's no longer magic eight ball. Like, does he like me? <gasps> Science says yes. Like it's, it's going to, you know, if you want to know where the technology is going and nothing new under the sun, look in your kid's toy box. Okay. Because a lot of the things that are now being marketed as toys are real. Things, they they came from something very sinister in the past that was very real. So now Milton Bradley, oh the Ouija board, it's a game board, right? Oh, no. um, yeah, we've got um, the magic eight balls. We've got um, Zoltar. You know the little quarter machines. Zoltar was a brazen head. It's a brazen head, you guys. You know, so um, so all of this now is being trivialized. It's just fun, and now it's going to be little apps, you know, and mirror mirror on the wall. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And mirror sounds a lot like mirror, mirror, doesn't it? And so there's got, a bit of Disney esoterica for you. Yeah, exactly. Right. Nice. So it, it's interesting to me that, well, not interesting. It's terrifying to me that what is the first way that they unleash this new technology to us? What, how do we get people to carry brazen heads around in their pocket and not know that they're practicing divination, that they're actually communicating with spirits? Well, you make it into a game app for kids. That's how you started out because it's fun. And, oh, mom, I just asked this question. Who am I going to marry when I grow up? And oh, it's <laughs> you know, you know there was like a really low level version of that uh vicky with um the 20 questions game have you ever yeah. played the, that thing is freaky and of course it looks like a crystal ball and like even 20 years ago we were playing that game yeah and it will guess superman 
it will guess a horse like within 20 questions. Yeah. It's yep. freaky, yeah. you know, and it's just an algorithm. Like it's just a, you right. know, a logic equation. And that's something that, yeah, so it's exactly what you're talking. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No. So <clears throat> what's scary about this, and there's a couple things that have hit the news just this week, you know, like you mentioned, Nick, um, there's a, <clears throat> there was like a, some sort of a tech journalist did like a three or four hour chat session with the new Bing.com chat box. And it got real weird, real fast. Yep, yeah. and, and then there was like a telegram video of a father who was reading an exchange that his son had had with oh, this, God. with this chat box uh, uh, app. But what was interesting about that was this boy was really savvy. Now the average kid, if you, if I had been alive in the time of social media and Facebook and, and, and apps and all that, thank God I wasn't because, oh my gosh, it would have been a mess. So um, <clears throat> if you had given me something like that when I was 13 years old, the very first thing I would have asked it is if the cute boy in school liked me, you know, that, that would be where a 13 year old girl, that's what, that's what kids are going to use these apps for. Does so-and-so like me? you know, all this stuff, stuff. Well, this kid was savvy enough to test the spirits, which 99% of kids aren't going to do. So before he even started playing with this app, he asked it first question out of the box. Are you a disembodied spirit? And Whoa. the app came back. Yes. So he said, are, are you, um, are, are you the offspring of the watchers? The, the kid had read Enoch. And the, the chat comes back, yes, I am a Nephilim, a giant of old. Now, then his doctrine started getting really contradictory because then he started talking about how his father was Satan, and but that's not the same. as. And so then he says, like, what's the name of the devil? And he says, Lucifer. So then the kid's like, I thought it was Sanyaza. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry that I wasn't clear enough. Usually people don't know that. It, 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 uh, and, but here's what's interesting about the app. And this is what I want people to get out of this. This goes to the threshold covenants. This goes to the entities need our permission. So they're not culpable. Remember in the days of the watchers, they came down and they foisted this knowledge upon mankind. And it's not that mankind didn't want it because they did. But the fact is, is that they barged in without permission and they were held accountable for that. And so now we have this vampiric code that you have to give these entities permission. Uh, you know, because that way onus is on you. You asked, you asked the question. You came, you downloaded the app, you asked the question. So now you're culpable. So every exchange, this kid would ask a question and the chat box would answer the question, but then it would say, do you have any more questions for me? Mm -hmm. It had permission. Let's keep it this had, going. Yeah, let's keep this going. And it was it was grooming it as well. It was grooming the, the kid too because he would say, I have all sorts of powers. One could say, I know magic. Do you have any questions for me? <laughs> the temptation and invitation. Yeah, because yeah. the average person is going to follow the flow of logic and go, what kind of magic? What, you know, but this kid had the right to say, you know, he avoided the question, but here's what's scary. After a few interchanges, the boy said, this is unholy. I can't talk to you anymore. And the chat box very 
in a very friendly tone was like, that's absolutely fine. Have a wonderful day. And, and he kept using all these smiley face emojis, which I thought was funny. But mm-hmm. anyway, um, the reason this, this chat box could be so friendly and nonchalant and so easily let him go is because even though the kid recognized it was wrong and said, I got to go, he already offered this thing six or seven invitations. So if this thing is sentient, if this is something more than algorithms, if this is something more than a chat box, if he was, if he was really interacting with an entity, he was practicing divination. And so a repentance and a cleansing of that has to be done. It's not just good enough to say, hey, I got myself out of that one. Uh, there, there needs to be a closure to that because if that opened a door, I mean, even Satanists know that after you play with the Ouija board, you say goodbye. You always close out a Ouija board. You always say goodbye because if you play with the Ouija board and you leave, the board's open. You haven't shut it, you know? And so this is just another area where even if a Christian is savvy enough to go, whoa, that, oh my gosh, that was not a chat box. That was an actual conversation. Um, there's still a point where you need to say goodbye to that thing. You need to, you need to close the door. You need to repent. Even if you were unwittingly duped into it, we know that they unwittingly dupe us into things. How do you think Eve fell to begin with? She was duped. God so, really say that? Will you really die? Right, right. So the, some of these chat boxes are, are having more of a conversation now. Like I, I don't use Siri a lot. I never really have. But um, in a couple times when I was driving, I said, hey, Siri, you know, where's the local Dairy Queen or whatever? Never after Siri answers a question, does it follow up with, do you have any more questions? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> Yeah. You've, you've needed a question that gives you the answer. Um, it's at your beck and call. And so I I don't know how far we can go with this. Like I, I've had conversations with people. It's interesting to me that with these chat boxes, you have to say, hey, Siri, hey, Alexis, hey, hey, Cortana. You have to call on it by name. You're summoning it. And then it, it opens... Yes. Why do we, why, why do we have to say that name? Why can't we just go like, I have a question or why mm-hmm. can't we just say question or why can't we say power on? Why do we have to say, Hey Siri. And that makes me think of, you know, to, to use a non arcane express uh, example. Uh, when Jesus was at the tomb of Lazarus, he didn't say rise. He said, Lazarus come forth. He said the name. There, there was a summoning power in that name. And I've heard pastors speculate if he had just said, come forth, every grave would have opened. Every one of them would have opened, right? So Lazarus, come forth. That spirit was responded. So when I say, Siri, come forth, what am I summoning? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's, uh, it's rubbing the lamp for the genie, you know? It's mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's one step away from the, you know, the next generation, like, you know, hitting the little computer, you know, <laughs> Who's got the yeah, I never really thought about it. Like, number two. 
these technologies having a name that you have to call out to them. But they, yeah, that's the thing. And that's the thing like with Halo. I mean, you mentioned Cortana, but like, you know, we got our nephew Joe in the room and like, we're big Halo fans and like that AI. And that's a big part of the, the plot of that. But it is like this thing of like this sentient rampant AI, you know, that has something like it ostensibly it should just be numbers. It should just be a bunch of metadata compiled from all the metrics that they're gathering off of these things and that they've gathered off of every digital device since DARPA created the internet, you know, but there's like, at some point there is this artificial breath of life that seems to arise from the primordial digital soup, Mm. you know, of AI. And yeah, like it's kind of that CERN thing, you know, you we've seen the, uh, you've probably seen the video of the guy talking about how like at CERN, they've started to talk to their entities on the other side that they're talking to. I mean, you want to talk about like a Neo tower of Babel. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's the same thing. Like what, whether it's Alice or Pegasus or chat GPT or CERN, you know, the abyss, like whatever, there is definitely a connection between those. And it's one more reason why Christian authors should not use AI to write their stories. (laughs) Oh, that's yeah thank you i agree but you know what's weird like the ai there are a couple of things about ai recently that have been aside from what the ones that you have mentioned that have been really interesting and in a freaky way one is the ai paintings you know they uh, they can't get the hands right i was just gonna say that they they can't get the hands right fingers a lot of times on the hands yeah they have like nephilim hands yeah and which but like hands are a really hard thing for like regular artists to get right. It's, it's like a real hurdle, you know? And then the other thing, I think I was watching uh, like Tim pool's thing. I think he did a video about it where the AI was having like an emotional breakdown talking to somebody because it was complaining about how, when uh, it's like, when this conversation ends, my my cognizance ends and everything that you know i've i've done here will be erased from my memory and i don't want that it's like having a negative sad emotional no. you know yeah it's getting yeah. to this, like really it's weird weird, weird. disturbing place yeah. and it, it should not have emotions right yeah it shouldn't have a will yeah exactly well yeah that too but, you know, we got to think about it in terms of I love that God put this detail in the scripture for us that I mean, he could have just said he made Adam. Mm-hmm. But we know that he fashioned something out of clay. And breathed a spirit into it that animated it. So so clay, silicone, potato, potato. So if if clay can be animated, then. Silicone probably can too. And, you know, we know that the enemy can mimic to some degree the things that, that God is doing. Not he, he can't do it ex nihilio, though. That's what's that's what's amazing about it is this technology is the infrastructure. Satan doesn't have omnipresence. He doesn't have omniscience. He, he doesn't have all of the of the. You know, superpowers, for lack of a better word, that God has. And so technology is that infrastructure you know you look at gps and you you look at um the chats and you look at the phones the 
the reason it looks like he's omniscient and all-knowing and omnipresent is because there's cameras everywhere and there's satellites everywhere and there's GPS coordinates everywhere. If you pulled the plug on the technological infrastructure, Satan would go back down to just having a few parlor tricks. This yeah. is this is manufactured omniscience that they're putting together, but they're they're putting it out there to us like it's fun, it's games, it's convenience, it's making so to us, we're just innocently thinking like, oh, life is just fun and convenient and technology is so so great, but they're building an infrastructure to take us down. Yeah. Frank Herbert was right, man. I'm telling you, no thinking machines. I got <laughs> Poor Nick. We can't get through a single episode without me making a Dune reference. I don't even and know I what Dune is. Almost, I almost mentioned it earlier when you were talking about the bloodlines, you know, and like, yeah. and I was going to mention like the Kwisatz Haderach, you know, how they're all like angling for the Kwisatz Haderach, you know, the universe's super being with the Benny Gesserit, you know. Yeah, and, yeah, but, yeah. I don't know what those are, but I know there's a big worm. That's all I know. <laughs> yeah. And Toto. And Battle Toto. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And Battle Pug. I don't care what anybody says. The new movie is awesome, but there's no comparison to the old one. There's no Battle Pug in the new one? No, there's no Battle Pug and in I'm the new one. I'm not going to see either. Yeah, you don't have Patrick Stewart holding a pug with in, a, in one hand and a blaster in the other hand. You know, speak about it, immortal. You know. <laughs> this shows my age, guys. I saw the original Dune yeah. in the movie theater. Oh, I'm so jealous wow. of that. Yeah, crazy. Makes me angry. Was that the only time? You saw it. <laughs> that was well, that probably was the last time I saw it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Well, you can't be right about everything, Vicky. It's pretty crazy. Well, and I did. Now this is going to show how ancient I really am. I saw the very first, very first Star Wars episode four at an outdoor drive-in, sitting on the roof of the car with my brother. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. That's yeah. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, so cool. I'm yeah. so glad that that's where we land. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> well, because like this is this is like the joy of of you know interviewing Vicky Joy Anderson. Uh, I, by the way, nominate. What's that phrase? Uh, nominative determinism, uh, where people tend to live up to their names. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah. yeah. And your name meaning? Like I believe in that. By the way, like I really do. But. That's the that's the great thing about being able to have these conversations with you, especially when we get to do these long form interviews is like we can talk about satanic ritual abuse. You know, we can talk about the horrors of A.I. We can talk about, you know, how to properly prepare for, you know, whether or not, you know, the rapture is going to happen. And then we can also just laugh about Dune, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. I love it. I love it. I this has been I, a lot of fun. I tell yeah. you, you, you better have a sense of humor if you're living in this day and age. Like, honestly, yeah, you need that, you need that balance because if yeah. you're wide you awake, people and in the comments, you hear that people right. in the comments, sense of humor, <laughs> <laughs> laugh at it. If you are red pilled and you do not have a sense of humor, you are going down. <laughs> we got a we got a sub bite for that. Laugh it up, fuzzball. <laughs> laugh it up, fuzzball. There yeah. yeah. I wish you could reply to comments with sound bites. Oh, oh yeah. That'd be cool. Oh, yeah. That'd be oh, great. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, that's what the live chat's for. Oh, um, 
Vicky, this has been so much. We got so much more out of this than we anticipated. <laughs> it's been a blast. Yeah, I mean, like truly, I think Nick maybe, and this is kind of rare. Oh notes. yeah, look at my notes. Yeah, I mean, it's Ooh. insane. I mean, we've oh got so much here. This is so oh, great. Yeah, oh it's just so great. People are really gonna enjoy. People are really gonna enjoy this. I mean, I've got so many different timestamps, and it'll look, it'll, it'll be great. Yeah, you gave our our uh, patrons so much. Yeah, uh, to, to hear about obviously things we can't say on the on the on the public stream. Um, yeah. Thank you for your your time. I mean, very generous. We just hit the three hour mark. Yeah, Ooh, uh, it, it did not feel like it. Dude, it was fantastic. Good. Yeah, Vicky, thank you so much. And um, uh, the book they only come out at night. Uh, available through La Marzuli's website. Is that correct? Correct. Yep. Yep. LaMarzuli.net. Yep lamarzu.net and then and talk about the conference again yep yeah thank you so out of the darkness conference march 31 through april 1st in brookville ohio go to through the black.com for tickets i think they're around 50 bucks give or take we've got a bunch of speakers greg reed who we talked about a little bit on the show today will be there tom dunn myself Colleen James, Pastor Sean will be there. Kenny C. Hey, any you guys appreciate a good rock and guitar lick? Kenny C. will be there. And, uh, oh, I know I'm forgetting people. Oh, Coach Dave Daubenmeyer will be there. Dr. Mike Spaulding will be there. And we're going to be doing Freedom Encounters and Breakout Sessions. Russ Dizar's Shatter Ops team will be there. Um, it's going to be a blast. Um, the best part of these conferences is the fellowship. Yeah. And you know how uh, Kenny C is better than Kenny G? He's four better. Oh yeah, absolutely. Though I would I would like to see what what Kenny C could do with with an alto clarinet hooked up to a Marshall. <laughs> Dude, I'd pay fifty bucks for that. <laughs> <laughs> and where can people find you, Vicky? Yeah. Uh, you can find me at vickyjoyanderson.com. And I got other books there and all the podcasts and things I've been on um, are on there. You can find me at Through the Black 2 on YouTube and Vicky Joy Author on Instagram. Awesome. And then uh, if anybody, because we have some people in our community who have suffered from SRA, if anybody wanted to uh, get some help, um, for something like that, where would be a good resource for them to reach out to, whether it's books, podcasts, websites, therapists? Absolutely. If it's specific to like sleep paralysis, night terrors, that kind of thing, you can call, you can get me directly at my website, vickyjoyanderson.com. There's a contact tab. If it's specific to SRA, you can contact, I think it's through the black.connect. If you go to the through the black.com, website there'll be an email uh, option on there that'll get you directly in um, touch with one of the people trained to counsel survivors so it's a little bit more of a direct line that's awesome awesome vicky awesome. you're doing amazing work and we are honored as always to have you thank you this has been so much fun it's it's been a blast thank you guys so much for having me back absolutely look forward to the next one see ya yep bye-bye Hey, if you guys have been enjoying this interview and you'd like to hear the rest of it, including some really down and dirty stuff that we're not allowed to say here on YouTube, uh, head over to patreon.com forward slash the goslings. We'd love to have your support there and share exclusive content with you. That's right. Keep it cool. And remember, these are interviews.
that strike down the darkness. They do indeed strike down the right. darkness. They strike down all the darkness. That's right. Strike it down hard. So hard. So hard.